So I know what a very bad meal looks like. I know not from my training in nutrition or my years working in healthcare. I know from growing up Adventist. I know what a very bad meal looks like, and I'll bet you know too. Look at this picture. That is a very bad meal. These Bible stories were published in 1963. That's the year I was born. Pacific Press and Review and Herald. Now, it's not enough that there's wine being poured and there's rich food all over the table, but it's a pig. That the apple doesn't matter. It's got little piggy ears and hoofs and everything out on a platter. And in case you don't know if it's a bad meal or not, you just look at the gentleman in the back. Two of them are gesturing over their mouth and bending over like they're going to, you know, like they're going to be sick or something, which is why I think the first time I tasted meat, I, fizz- I got sick from my head down to my stomach. We all know what a very, very bad meal looks like. And if you'll allow me to reminisce with you for just a couple of minutes and read this version of the story that several of us grew up with. And if you weren't raised in the Adventist faith, we're going to give you just a little taste of what you missed this morning. (laughs) Daniel and his friends were bound by soldiers and taken from Jerusalem. When Jerusalem was conquered, the army of Babylon took treasures from the temple, but they also took treasures from homes. They took boys who could be helpful to the king. Daniel and his friends were among those who were selected by the king. Special invitation, actually. They were given new names and rations of food from the king's table. They were given a special guardian who cared for them. Their assignment was to last for three years, and it was actually a privilege to be selected from the other captives. It meant Daniel and his friends could feast on all that good food. But the group of four quickly recognized this food had been offered to idols, and as the book actually states, this food is not good for best food for boys to grow. So they devised a plan to ask their guardian, Melzar, for pulse and water. When they asked for the special dietary considerations, Melzar said no, because if the king sees you looking thinner than the other boys, he will cut my head off. Please, the boys begged, just for ten days. They got their way for ten days, and they are far from home, but they do not forget three times a day to kneel and pray facing the temple in Jerusalem. When Daniel prays, he asks God to bless the pulse and water and make the boys strong so that Melzar will know pulse and water are better for boys than the king's rich food. After ten days, when the boys are called forward and they're found to be fairer and fatter than the boys who ate the king's food, And in case you're not convinced, you just need to look at the sickly boys in the second row there. (laughs) They are pale and thin and sickly. Our boys were found fairer and fatter. So for three years, Daniel and his friends were allowed pulse and water. One, two, three years went by. The boys were called in front of the king. They'd grown taller, but were they wiser? The king tested them, and they prepared. They wore clean clothes, combed their hair, and polished their sandals. The book said, remember, these guys are in exile, in captivity in Babylon. That's pretty good. 
They combed their hair, they put on clean clothes, they polished their sandals. When they stood in front of the king, they were found to be ten times wiser. Now, this story was so foundational to me growing up Adventist. It really, truly was a story that gave me an awareness about my body and especially an awareness of what we're to eat. So when we knew this health emphasis Sabbath was coming, I thought about Daniel and his three colleagues. I haven't really studied the story carefully for myself. In fact, this Bible story version is really the version I know. So I had no idea if this had anything to do with Chip. I just thought, let's study this passage for this week. I've been on vacation most of the week, but when the rest of the pastors met on Tuesday, I gave them the passage they could read and study if they want, as we usually do on Tuesday mornings. When Ken, Pastor Ken, sent me a report later in the day about staff meeting, and I had said, you know, if you learn anything interesting out of the passage, let me know. And Ken sends me an email and says, you're pretty much on your own with this passage. (laughs) These are my friends. (laughs) There is a Bible in the pew in front of you. Daniel chapter 1 is where the story begins. It is the first of a cluster of six stories, most of them featuring Daniel and some the other Israelites. Six stories that form the beginning of the book, and I think that it is important that we remember that, and I'll come back to it later. Daniel and his friends are essentially slaves. They're captives. They're not there by choice. Babylon is a city-state with a rich history, a a history of destruction, rubble, and ruin, and a, a, a history of expansion, building, and improvements. Through the centuries, actually, Babylon rises and falls many times, as rich of a history as almost any city in Mesopotamia. Babylon's located about 50 miles south of modern-day Baghdad, Iraq, by the way, between the Euphrates and the Tigris River, very fertile land there. Definitely during the time of Babylon and his friends, or of Daniel and his friends, Babylon is in a time of expansion, of lush expansion. By the way, when the Iraq War started, there are a group of interested scholars who are so concerned over the treasures in that region, those still underneath the ground and those in museums that were being destroyed and looted, an interested group of scholars wrote to the United States government and said, please stop bombing, for we're losing precious data. And it's estimated that in the Gulf War and the Iraq War, hundreds of thousands of pieces of archaeological evidence have been lost, looted, destroyed as a result of of the war efforts there. Those are the kinds of pieces of information that help us understand Daniel's story at the king's table. Daniel and his friends are residents now taken from their homes, just as the Bible story said. The Bible also says, Nebuchadnezzar wanted good, solid, healthy young man. Chapter 1, verse 4. He wanted young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. As has already been stated, these men are to be educated in the ways of Babylon. That means language and culture and history. And that means also religion. As telling as anything else, these four young men are given new names. They had Hebrew names given chosen carefully by their families, probably somehow connected to the Hebrew God, and now they're given new names, Babylonian names, that are connected to the Babylonian gods, which signifies the most significant disconnect in their lives. 
They are, they are cultures away from the religion of Yahweh, of the Hebrew people, the Israelites. Now they live with Babylonian names, which is supposed to be a sign of who owns them and what their characters will be like. The idea is that they will eat the food and socialize with the people and they will become comfortable. And if Nebuchadnezzar is successful at making them comfortable, there's less of a chance that they'll revolt and cause a problem in Babylon and a greater chance that they'll serve the king. That is the plan, except for Daniel, verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with royal food and wine. He asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. If you read from the King James Bible, it says Daniel purposed in his heart. Some of you remember that phrase? Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself. He set his heart. He put his part, heart. He chose for his heart an intentional place to be, that he did not defile himself. There's no hesitancy about Daniel's decision. There's no indecision on his part. He's not wishy-washy at all. It's a confident, decisive purposeful move. He won't defile himself. On Thursday, I flew uh, into Sacramento Airport very early in the morning. I was on the campus of Pacific Union College just for the day, but when we began to descend over Sacramento, pilot came on and said, you may notice it's just a little rough out here this morning. We're ready to descend, but uh, as you can see, if you look out the window, the airport is fogged in. So I, I just wanted to uh, alert you all, and we should be okay. We have all the proper equipment to guide a landing. You're not going to see the ground until we are on it. So it's probably best if you sit back and relax now. <laughs> because we should be okay. I don't like the sound of that. You either are or we aren't okay. Daniel purposes something in his heart. It is a conviction. It is firm. It is solid. It's not a partway commitment. He purposes in his heart. He will not defile himself. Now, why is that? Is it because he knows there's idle meat on the table? Meat that's been dedicated for another purpose in the temples in Babylon. It's not that much unlike our communion bread. You celebrated communion here last Sabbath with Pastor Isaac and Pastor Saul. And this is the leftover communion bread from last Sabbath. You ate it all but this much. And uh, my sister happened to make, she makes the communion bread now after many years of Shirley Jones being in charge of communion and Jill Haler making communion bread. Bonnie's been making it for about a year. This is the leftover. Those of you who've grown up Adventists, you know we don't eat this. That there's something special that happens to this. And when I was a little girl growing up, I saw the deaconesses burn this. I saw my mother throw this in the fireplace and burn it. And pour the grape juice out on the ground because it's been on the table in the sanctuary and it's been dedicated for a purpose. And that is on page 71 of the church manual. and has biblical roots. That's the idea with the idol meat. It's been dedicated for a pagan pur purpose. So is that why Daniel doesn't want to eat it? Is it because of the Levitical laws in Leviticus chapter 11, which by the way, it's interesting, Leviticus 11 doesn't mention wine. Is it because of other teachings that the Hebrews, these Hebrew youth know? You really shouldn't eat any food from a Gentile table. It's all suspicious. So just stay away from all of it. 
What's the reason Daniel chooses not to eat? Why does he think this food will defile him? Probably one of those reasons, but it is not a small choice for Daniel. Some people say it's a small choice. Uh, day after day, habitual choice to just do what Daniel did. Well, this is not a small choice for Daniel. The way the Hebrews ate in exile and after exile in particular is a defining mark on who they belonged to. Not unlike you and I with the Sabbath that we choose to honor this day. It's a defining mark. We're quite unique out in the world, aren't we? So for Daniel, this isn't a small gesture. This goes to his very identity as a son of Yahweh. He chose not to eat any of the food or drink any of the drink, along with his colleagues. And verse 20 records the result. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, the king found these men ten times better than all magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And as it turns out, Daniel and his friends were living by a principle many Adventist Christians live by and have for decades and even into centuries now. We believe in a holistic approach to life that our whole body belongs to God, that it is our whole body that we bring and surrender to God and and fall under God's will, how we should use our body, what we should put into our body so that our bodies will better serve God. It's a principle Daniel and his colleagues were living by. Our entire body is under God's authority. And a nation watched. Daniel and his friends. I believe that I have to agree with the commentators who say, the point of this story is not really that a vegetarian diet is superior. I think I have to agree with them. The point of the story is not to say you'll be superior spiritually, physically, mentally, if you would choose this diet. And by the way, should you come, choose to come to this cardiac health improvement program, I am so proud to tell you that no one will teach in you in this program or your friends that we are superior because we choose to eat in a healthy way. I am so proud of that in this program, Mike and Arliss and all those who help you, that it is humble in its presentation. I don't believe that's the purpose of this story. Stay away from all the bad food and the drink and you're superior. Because today in 2009, the Adventist Church, with this health um, message we have embraced all of these years, we find ourselves in a new situation with a world, an America at least, that agrees that it matters what we put into our body, with an America, a scientific community and a nutrition community that largely agrees that a plant-based diet, a diet that includes less meat products, A diet that includes some other habits like exercise and sleep and water is a good choice for people. It will lead to less incidence of disease and it's correlated with a much longer and healthier productive life. There isn't a whole lot of debate about that in 2009. We really are in a different era. Just uh, Monday of this week, when the news program was on, one of the two-hour major network news programs in the morning, and in the first 30-minute segment, there were two features on health and nutrition. I was interested to notice that, how abundant the topic is in the news, and and, uh, two segments together almost. The first one was uh, of an aging man who's written a book. I think this guy is a little bit like Jared Wright. Because this guy believes in vegetarianism so we can decrease our carbon footprint on the earth. 
He believes in a plant-based diet because it's better on all of our resources, because it feeds more people, because it's a way we could solve global poverty. If we were more careful about what we consume and grow and eat, we would have more to share. And our, our planet will last longer. And by the way, Adventist Christians ought to embrace the, these teachings because they're biblical. From Genesis 2, they're biblical. The second segment happened to be with children who had chosen to become vegetarian. And what that means in a home, if a child decides they would like a vegetarian lifestyle, and what, how, how do you cook to accommodate everyone in the household, they interviewed a seven-year-old girl. It was a precious interview. She had purposed in her heart that she would stop eating animals. And by the way, children and teenagers now in the 21st century, when they take steps towards a plant-based diet, a vegetarian diet, it's often for ethical reasons, for fair and humane treatment of animals, something Adventist Christianity hasn't even really talked about. So they interview the little seven-year-old girl who has decided she will not eat any animals except for she doesn't feel so bad for the fish. She said, there seems to be more of them in the water swimming around together, so I don't feel so badly if I eat a few. She's called a pectarian, fish plus a plant-based diet. And she's very happy with her choice. This is common in our world today in 2009. What Adventist Christians have believed for all of these years. In the book of Daniel, one of the conclusions I've come to for myself this week is that I believe I have read this book in a fragmented fashion. I think I have taken those first six stories at the beginning of the book. Those are the stories where Daniel and his friends eat at the king's table and the fiery furnace and the writing on the wall. There are six stories clustered together at the beginning of the book there that all talk about faithfulness and loyalty and testing their commitment to God. And then after that come the visions and the prophetic conversations and the timelines and the wars and the beasts and the rulers. I think I have read these in separate categories. That what happens in those first stories with Daniel and his friends happened to them. And all of the visions and prophecy are what happens to us. That th that's the part Adventist Christians should look at. But actually we ought to put them all together. Because the first six stories teach Daniel, reinforce for Daniel and his friends, how they might live so that they will live through and endure the last part of the book. Faithful living prepares them for everything else that's coming in the book of Daniel. Faithful, obedient, loyal, dedicated living. I've seen examples of that. This week we had a service for Pastor Carl Curry yesterday. I'm not sure I know a more obedient, faithful, loyal, committed man. Privileged to know him. This afternoon, another service, a celebration of life for Louise Anholm in a very quiet, understated way. Faithful, loyal, committed you just have to read some of what she's written over the years and some of the letters to her children. What a faithful woman we'll celebrate this afternoon. In the book Prophets and Kings, when Ellen White talks about Daniel's actions at the king's table, she says that Daniel is working out his own salvation. 
She goes on to say, because of the goodness and grace of God, because of the promises of God, Daniel, when he gets into Babylon, is able to live his life in a loyal, faithful, disciplined way that honors and respects and, and lives in light of God's goodness. That Daniel is able to do this because all God's goodness and promise has come first. So it actually isn't probably a story that teaches us vegetables and water are better. In Babylon, everyone knew if you eat vegetables and water, you will end up sick and thin and not able to work like the men featured in the back row of the picture, actually. That was the common experience. But here come these four faithful, loyal Hebrew men, and they're eating this ridiculously poor diet and Nebuchadnezzar has made all of these promises to them, and in the end, they stand tall and wiser and fatter, not because of Nebuchadnezzar, but because of the God of Israel. God has blessed them. That's what the story is about. People who choose to live in response to God, faithful, loyal, committed, obedient people who will purpose something in their heart. That's what I believe is happening. It is the beginning of 2009, and it is predicted to be one of the most historic years in American history. We don't even know what to expect, really, in America, do we? It is also the beginning of a year between you and God. Uh, the beginning of a year where you could purpose something in your heart, where you could, with conviction and loyalty, with a decided purpose, you could live your life in response to God this year in a more powerful way than last year. I'm, I'm really beginning to believe that it's true what you hear. If you set your mind on nothing, we usually arrive at nothing. If we set our goal nowhere, we usually arrive nowhere. Isn't that true? We needed a calendar in our house for 2008 last year, as 07 was coming to an end, we got all the way into January of 08. I had not bought a calendar for the house yet, so I went to the bookstore at the end of the month. At the end of January, if you need an 08 calendar, what you have to choose from is John Deere, <laughs> WrestleMania, Harry Potter, Taoism, and baby pigs dressed in ballerina clothes. <laughs> so in my kitchen all year, we have looked at baby pigs dressed in ballerina clothes. And all year I have said, this will not happen in 2009. I will get to the bookstore. We will look at something respectable in this kitchen. And it is January 10, and I have not been to the bookstore. And I'm worried we'll be looking at WrestleMania or John Deere. If we purpose something in our heart, if we take a stand like Daniel, which is really what's happening here, with conviction, he says, I purpose in my heart to do this God, the story tells us God blesses that action. Can you purpose something in your heart between you and God for this year? A step of wellness. Last year when we were at this time, Chip Emphasis Sabbath, 
I reread that sermon, and I invited us all, if each of us, each one in the church, took one step towards wellness, we just chose one little step, one habit we could include in our regimen, one, one, one step taking us closer to wellness, that together, collectively, as a church body, we would be so much pow- more powerful for God. Can you stay, take one step Can you commit purpose in your heart now for this year? Just one step towards wellness. Because I'm also persuaded, it is true, God is not looking for influential people he can make faithful. He's looking for faithful people who will be influential. Purpose in your heart.